and welcome to the Phoenix Cast. host, M. Alves, and joining me today are Alondra and Catherine. And because folks are always their best uh, experts, I'm going to ask them to each introduce themselves again. Alondra, will you go first, please? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Alondra. I'm one of the graduate interns at the PCA, getting my master's in social work here at Metro, and we'll hopefully be finishing in May. That is my round of applause for the audience. Uh, (laughs) Catherine. Hey, y'all. As you may know, my name is Catherine Miller. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am the advocacy services program manager for the Phoenix Center at Auraria. And also one of (laughs) Alondra's So today we're going to be talking about about sexual violence as a tool of colonization. So this is definitely a a tough topic. Um, Many people have been personally impacted by both sexual violence and colonization. So definitely take care when you're listening to this no pressure to power your way through this episode. If you need to take breaks, please take breaks. Um, But before we dive into specifically the topic of sexual violence as a tool of colonization, we're going to first do a check-in on, you know, how was everyone's fall break and how are folks accounting or or celebrating or mourning on um, what is often known as Thanksgiving, but for folks who are anti-Thanksgiving, may be better known as Thanksgiving or a national day of mourning. So how, how was your fall break y'all? How are you honoring those we've lost and spending time with your loved ones as well? So I think as a very, very white person who comes from a very, very white family. I will say that historically, my family has celebrated a fairly traditional idea of an American Thanksgiving. And so that's something that I've had to take stock of the last few years and pay more attention to. And that can be really difficult to like to challenge your family um, on these holidays that are that feel to them so rooted in a tradition that is, you know, really just based on genocide and trying to get them to understand like why we need to conceptualize things differently and and look at the day in a completely different way um, as white folks, particularly to look at um, historically the harm that we have caused and to to really focus on colonization and that like why people would need to mourn on a day like that, where it's like, we've really painted Thanksgiving as this holiday that's, you know, about like, really it's about, it's about gluttony and like how much, how much can you eat and how much food can you make and how much time can you spend making that food? Um, And we've tried to package it in this very um, appealing, you know, American manifest destiny way uh, of like, this is family time and this is where we express gratitude and and all this stuff. And I think, you know, family time and gratitude is really important and also, um, very contradictory to the history of like how we came to this day to be what it is. And so I, 
I'm still reconciling right. that. Yeah, that's myself. kind of how I often do it. Therefore, it's a like struggle. I, like you'll I don't notice it a fall break. The right? past couple of years, it hasn't really felt like a holiday. It's just like a day that I have off from work now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, something I really yep. like that. And you like, said I there wish that we like all, as staff, also got a full it's, it's fall a day break. Of that would have been amazing, ways, especially like because how much we all be real tired during Thanksgiving holidays, and the fact that like so many people in our country are starving, um, and particularly folks who are living on reservations have to deal with a lot of food insecurity, right? And so it's also like very like a slap in the face, right? To like have this day of gluttony and, and also like be participating in the concept of a feast, right? Especially like something that I learned this year is that feasting is an indigenous concept, right? So like the fact that we are taking on, we're taking on that practice without actually honoring the folks who showed that practice to the original, I don't know, like pilgrims, but that's all a historicism in terms of how that that first feast went, right? Which you referenced as well, Catherine, that ahistoricism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. I will I say here that I can't know take that. credit for like, it's I'm not really like I did deep that. research sure a lot of to find that. that. I'm really, really lucky. Uh, correction, that I'm a lot of white Well, I'm not lucky that. to be active on Twitter, but I am lucky to follow some really amazing native uh, uh, Twitter accounts who really um, have provided amazing resources for me to go through my, on my own time. I will link them in the description because I will have to scour. <laughs> and the only person I can remember is Salty Lil OG Boy. That's the only, so that and it's only because I like the handle so much. <laughs> Alondra, how was your holiday or break? Like it. Really? Kind of similar to Catherine. It was kind of a regular day. And I wasn't aware about the feasting. So thank you for sharing that, Em. And yeah, for the last few years, it's been really a regular day. And I've tried to take what we're supposed to do in that one day and just spread it out through the the year, you know, be grateful every day. And, you know, try to spend time with my family on other regular days, because that's really what that day is. I, I'm not, I'm not okay with like the, the meaning for it. So I don't celebrate it. I don't appreciate people saying like, happy Thanksgiving, which I did get a few texts and it's a little, I don't know, uneasy and an easy feeling to feel. And, um, but yeah, I just try to remind myself that I should be grateful every day and um, family is important. We should hang out Mm -hmm. when we can, you know, due to COVID, we can't really hang out, but that's how my week went. I had a similar experience. My partner and I don't celebrate uh, Thanksgiving. We, we eat dinner on that day as, as we normally eat dinner. Typically I will say there's usually like a little more gravy, uh, but that's also just the changing of the seasons, right? Like you tend to crave gravy um, or just like, you know, the carby things that gravy goes on during this time of year. So definitely for us, it's not something that we celebrate in our household, definitely feeling solidarity with indigenous brothers and sisters all across uh, Turtle Island. So why don't we kind of take a dive into the topic of 
sexual violence as a tool of colonization. And in particular, Alondra, you created a series of graphics on our social media that folks may have seen by now. And if not, go to our social media. It's all there. Alondra, what was the process of finding that information? What drew you to the topic? Um, And why do you think this is something that's important for everyone to know? Yeah, so the topic is on sexual violence and colonization. And as I was doing the research for this, I found like so many similarities in tactics used in violence and colonization. And something that I also came across was a webinar. And in that webinar, they discuss colonization and tactics of violence and how they're basically the same. So I would really recommend you all watch that that webinar. It's really interesting and it gives a good introduction to this topic. So when like Alondra and I did talk about this topic a little bit in some of our supervision and just, you know, exploring the ways that multiple issues intersect with the forms of violence that, that we work with in our center. And we really like, can't like separate issues of colonialism, like race and, and gender oppression. Like all of those things are, are intertwined. And it's really important that we give that colonialism part a little bit more credence. I think, you know, we've historically done a great job of talking about gender oppression and we're starting to, you know, move the needle forward and thinking about racial oppression and still not doing a great job um, talking about how that intersects with colonization. And I watched the same uh, webinar that, that Alondra did. Uh, We kind of did it as like a like a staff thing, like we all watched it so that we could talk about it. And one of the things that I think is really important about that webinar that maybe like drives some things home between the work that we do at at the Phoenix Center um, and talking about interpersonal violence and colonization is like how inherently tied those two things are to power and control. And that colonization as a practice Mm -hmm. is also tied to power and control. And we can't talk about either of these things, colonization or interpersonal violence without bringing that up. And I think probably like inherently, we probably know that, but don't necessarily draw that direct connection in such a way. And I think that the webinar does a really, really good job of doing that and showing, you know, historically how colonization has, has used things like sexual violence as a tool of power and control. Right. Because it's it's really about taking away that agency, Millennia, separating really. it's people been, it's and domination. Very well documented right. And sexual violence has been years. used as a as a weapon of war for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we forget. That and so part sometimes too, folks that, also that don't realize like suffer many folks may realize like for instance that women. indigenous women have higher rates of sexual either. violence perpetrated against them to this day. And a lot of people may not realize that that directly follows the history of colonization. So can you both kind of talk a little bit about like how that's manifested in the last 200 years uh, in what is now known as the United States? Right. (laughs) I forget we're a baby country. We're a baby country still. 
wow, like 200 years sounds like a lot of years and also like not a lot of time mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, we're totally a baby country. And and that like these things are still happening, right? So, you know, it's hard to say like, oh, this is what happened 200 years ago. And we can say like, this is happening at detention centers at the border right now. And it's it's really not, it's really not that different. Also gives me a lot of feelings about thinking about like, Thanksgiving when we're like, oh, family and all these things, but like, let's separate them all at the border. So, you know, feelings, we can process those things later. But when we look at, you know, the, the progression of the United States, as we understand it from, you know, like the, the revolutionary war forward as, I mean, we took over, you know, the East coast pretty quickly, right. Send some folks over. We're like, this is ours now. Like we just, we just do this. We claim this for England, which, you know, white uh, yeah, have been sorry. Those are my time. ancestors. That's not did. new. Everyone <laughs> knows the story of Columbus and how awful he was to the Taino people, or at least I hope that, you know, um, also hope that I said that correctly. Great. Again, very white pronunciation, not my strong suit, but want to make sure that I get it correct. So like, so we started, right, like taking over land on the East Coast from indigenous folks and then continuously like pushing them further and further West as we then continue to push further and further West. And, you know, when we hear people talk about the theory of like divide and conquer, like that comes from very specific ideas of war and colonization. And that was white folks intention as well. So like in order to be able to push natives off their land and then maintain that space for themselves, they had to divide and conquer. And part of that strategy is like, well, let's take the women, right? And we will either rape and murder them to, you know, take them away from their men and remind them of the power that Both we have, or we will take genocide, them as our own wives. Right. Like I think a lot of people don't realize that blood quantum then, laws function, you know, like babies will so that eventually time, right? there's no, like no one who is quote unquote qualified to be native enough to contest the, what the violence that the United States has continued to enact for centuries. yes to all of those things. And you know, like sexual violence is just, is one tool, but it's a very effective tool. I think anyone who has experienced sexual violence could easily understand how that changes you as a person, changes the dynamics of your family, changes how you trust people, can make you exceptionally fearful, starts to, you know, embody those feelings of shame and guilt, which can be really, really hard to escape. And some people never do which would also make it easy to understand like why fighting some of that may be more difficult. Right. And so like why people would flee or leave. And I think that's an important part of colonization as well is, is implementing and instituting that level of fear. Like, look what we can do to your people. And from my understanding of a lot of native communities who were, you know, more matriarchal as opposed to patriarchal, women are highly valued. So when you look at what sexual violence did it in right. that and way, in a lot to of like, ways it to was degrade a women in that way in front of, you know, their men, like their way that of took life, away, to like their a whole culture to their layer entire society. to those tribes, then maybe we even fully yeah. realize. In the webinar, it was mentioned that all forms of oppression 
are a result of a hierarchical belief system. And when I was doing my study, I found that 96% of perpetrators were non-native. And some of the reasoning behind why Europeans assaulted native women were because they weren't seen as pure. They were seen as less than the, the woman that they were used to seeing the European woman. Therefore, they, they validated the abuse because Native women weren't pure enough or civilized enough and oftentimes had less clothing on because that's their way of living. So because of these differences, they felt that they were, they were more than the Native people or they were more valued than the Native people and that justified the violence. Absolutely. So it was about, it was a large part of that entitlement too, right? And dehumanization, right? Like if you don't even view indigenous women as human, then it justifies these acts of terror and war and colonization. And it's really important, right? That statistics of like, even to this day, right? 96% of perpetrators are non-native. And oftentimes, like people don't realize this and the sounds, if, if you're not aware of this, this sounds wild, right? It is an extremely common practice for perpetrators to just hang out around reservations, right? To just wait for a specifically native woman, right? Because they are targeting someone that they don't think will be believed. They're targeting someone that until recently wasn't even considered a person, under the United States laws, and they're targeting someone who they believe they're entitled to, right? So they're in this area and essentially just like, just waiting, right? And so I think in a lot of ways, reservations also function to leave indigenous folks as sitting ducks, right? Like it's low quality land to begin with because they were moved from their original lands. Um, so it's often very arid, difficult to grow things. There's not a lot of plumbing. Um, there's often a lot of traveling that needs to be done on and off the reservation to get the things you need to survive. And then there are perpetrators who are waiting and taking advantage of that. And that's not even to mention like what the government does to take advantage of that. Yeah, I think during my research, I also found something that said how oftentimes when rapes occur in the reservation, they can't go to a, a court because that's like a different government. So that, like you were saying, Emma, it gives the perpetrator more reason to go seek out Native women coming out of reservations because they know they possibly won't be believed or they won't be able to do anything about it in a legal way to, to have justice. Absolutely. And Catherine, this might be a good time to kind of mention some changes to VAWA to address some of these. I know that there have been changes to VAWA. So I think that there's like a stronger focus on I don't know if they framed it as paying attention to murdered and missing Indigenous women specifically, or just paying more attention to violence that is occurring on or near reservations. It's it's either, it's both or just one of those, but like this is starting to gain more traction mm -hmm. in, in some places of government. Um, at least it is the parts that are focusing on violence against women. And that's, that's pretty important. So I mm -hmm. think that 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 focus and, and continuing to drive that focus moving forward will be incredibly valuable, especially because like when we're talking about murdered and missing indigenous women, which is 
you know, a pretty commonly used term to refer to uh, Native women, both in the United States and in Canada, who have disappeared, and they are assumed to have been murdered, generally uh, by white men, that there was formally like no way to track that. And so the numbers are skewed, like we're not actually sure potentially how many women would fit into this category, but that I think the government is also starting to pay more attention to that as part of VAWA as well, to also then have a database where where these people are, are being Absolutely. And, and I'm really glad that you tied to, it to like, murdered, missing being murdered and missing women because women, which is I, I, I think important. that when people hear that, um, they also don't really hear the ties to sexual violence, right? Like we're assuming that the majority of murdered, missing, and indigenous women have been sexually abused, sexually exploited, and potentially trafficked, right? So I think that's a really, really big thing to talk about, especially because something I've noticed, right, is that it's just starting to gain some traction in the United States at the government level. But really in Canada, like they've had public campaigns done by amazing indigenous organizations for over a decade to address missing, murdered and indigenous women. And I haven't seen the public attention of the United States reach the level that it has in Canada. Not to say that the government in Canada is addressing it well, but that the the public campaigns by indigenous groups have done so, so much to raise uh, awareness when it comes to these issues. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like the stuff that they're doing in Canada is like things we should be learning from here to raise that visibility. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that they do pretty publicly is the red dresses where they like, they hang up red dresses for every murdered and missing indigenous woman that they're aware of. And they've done it in different places. Like I think one year I saw it, they did it in like a forest. And another time I think that they did it on like a busy section of like some kind of downtown district. And often those campaigns are really effective. Like similarly, it's kind of to what we do with the red flag campaign because it gives you the visual, right? Like it's one thing I think to talk about it or to hear one individual story. And sometimes people think that what they want is to hear the the individual story when in truth, it's, it's the totality of understanding what's happening that drives us towards change. And so I think those, those campaigns are, are wonderful and hopefully continue to be more and more effective. I would love for us as a country to also be creating that kind of visibility to talk about this issue so that we have less murdered and missing indigenous women in our country. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely, it's, it's definitely on the non-native and non-indigenous organizations to be raising those awareness, right? Like at the PCA, we are not a native or indigenous organization, but this is a topic that we care about deeply because we know how deeply it affects many of our clients. And one of the reasons I mentioned Canada as well, even though obviously we're based in Colorado within the United States, But there were no borders before colonization, right? Like when it comes to um, indigenous peoples across Turtle Island, that's all of North America, right? And so a lot of um, different indigenous groups have been in community with each other across what we now know as borders. So that's also something really important to mention. 
But we also don't want to take away too much from the actual webinar that we want people to watch, right? So we're going to be linking the webinar. And the webinar is, as stated, it's from the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Um, and it was presented by Brenda Hill, who is the Director of Technical Assistance and Training. The only thing that I think all of us would mention is something that Brenda Hill mentioned herself. She tends to use the term batterer because she's been in this movement for a very long time. And batterer tends not to be a term that people use anymore for many reasons. But in particular, one of those reasons is that it really minimizes um, violence down to only physicality when we know that violence can appear in many, many different ways, including emotional, financial, religious, spiritual, specific for indigenous folks ritual abuse, for instance. So that is really our only no, um, just to let you all know and to highlight something that she herself mentions. Any other last thoughts before we jump off and let folks get to this wonderful webinar that we really, really hope that they check out, as well as all of the other amazing resources that the National uh, Indigenous Women's Resource Center uh, puts out? I think my parting thought would be, if you listened to this and you were like, wow, I didn't know so many of these things. Please continue to do your own research and to understand the far-reaching impacts of colonization and how that is tied to oppression. I think that is part of how we start to undo the effects of colonization. And so when people say like, we want to decolonize things, like that's really what this means. And in order to decolonize, you have to understand the impacts of colonization. So please go out and continue to do your own research. If you have questions about anything that we talked about in this podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to us um, and ask. We can provide some great resources or or can connect you to other folks on campus um, who are doing some work in this field. Also, if you haven't read anything yet by Sarah Deer, who is a wonderful academic in like the crossover between like indigenous studies and violence, um, I would highly recommend reading her work. Alondra, any last parting thoughts? Yeah, I would just again recommend that if you have the time and are interested to watch this webinar and They have a lot more webinars on their website and this is a great way to just inform yourself and not sometimes when you're trying to get information, you like ask the wrong people or, you know, hurt others by asking them. So this is a way that you can just inform yourself and they have great resources on their webpage that can link you to other sources. So I think it's a good place to start. Absolutely. Right. And so something to really emphasize here is it's a good starting point and that there shouldn't be an end point, particularly for our non-Indigenous listeners, right? If you're not Indigenous, this is going to be constant work to challenge colonial structures. And I really echo what Catherine says, that decolonization and wanting to decolonize things, it's become this really big buzzword. And it is starting to lose some of the really intentional meanings set by Indigenous people. So really make sure that you're fully understanding what decolonization actually looks like as it's defined by Indigenous people, the people who have been most affected by colonization. And thank you all so much for listening. Hopefully folks had a restful fall break and are ready to dive into why I call it fall break and I never say Thanksgiving break. (laughs) So thank you so much to our guests again for joining us on today's episode Uh, and make sure to send this to folks, read, review, subscribe, all those big words about interacting with our podcast, do them.